And we are going to now get into this time of where we're going to hear God's word preached. Um, my name is Ben Moser. If any of you don't know me, I am the director of congregational worship here at CFC. I'm thankful to Elias for leading us in singing this morning so I could be freed up uh, to serve this different role and work on a sermon this week. And uh, we are going to be taking a break from our series in Revelation. That'll be back next week. But for this week, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. I just thought, all right, I'm preaching this week. What I want to do? I just picked one of my favorite passages. So I'm very excited uh, to be sharing this with you this morning. Would you please bow your head with me one more time as we pray over this time? Father, we are so very thankful and grateful to you that you have given us your word that we don't have to guess, like Gordon was just saying, at who you are or what you're like, but you reveal yourself to us in your word. And as we learn in this passage we're going to read today, your word never returns empty. Your word never returns void, but your word is powerful. It's living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it is effective in the work that it does in us, God. So we come before you this morning expectant, ready to see how you are going to shape us and pierce us and grow us through your word right now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I think what we run into in our passage today in Isaiah is a problem that every single person on earth forever, now and going forward has from the beginning of time to now, which is that every single one of us has a need problem that we run into right created to live together with our God, to worship him, to serve him, to work the garden, to be there. And now, ever since, as we've been wandering through this earth, we have something that we can't actually do on our own. We have a need that can only be filled by God that we can't do, we can't figure it out on our own. And all you have to do is look around our world and see all the ways people try to do it, to know that none of them work. People are constantly scrimping and saving and scrabbling after things to try and somehow have a fulfilling life, have a happy life. That's all people want, right? They try anything. They work super hard, really long hours. Maybe that's where fulfillment is. Then they take all that money they got and they buy all kinds of stuff trying to figure out maybe this is the way, maybe this can satisfy my thirst. That never works, so they go and they turn over to any other kind of thing burying themselves in food or in sex or in whatever it is. We try and fix it. We try and fix the problem ourselves, but all of us are in the same boat, a problem that we cannot fix. We have a thirst that we cannot quench. We have no money. No amount of money could possibly ever get us to the point of true satisfaction, true life. We are in trouble. We have a problem. But praise the Lord, as we are going to see in Isaiah chapter 55 today, if you want to go ahead and open up to the book of Isaiah, should be right in the middle of your Bible somewhere, uh, towards the end of it, chapter 55, we're going to see that there is one way for that need to be met. There is a way for our thirst to be quenched. Before we jump right into 55 verse 1, I just want to give you a quick overview of the book of Isaiah. Obviously, A really big book of the Bible, 66 chapters. We're jumping right into the middle of it. I think it's impossible for us to understand chapter 55 unless we understand what is leading up to it. So the book of Isaiah, it's broken up into three main sections. The first section of it is chapters 1 to 39. And in the beginning of the book, God is just prophesying judgment 
Over and over again, he's telling the people of Judah, hey, you guys have messed up. I'm going to bring judgment. He tells all the nations surrounding Judah, you guys are going to have judgment too. In fact, God is going to come and judge the whole world. And it's over and over again throughout the 39 chapters of the book. Then, at chapter 39, God comes. He tells Hezekiah, he says, hey, Babylon is about to come and they are going to carry you off in exile. They're going to destroy Jerusalem. They're going to take all of you, carry you off. And then it just stops right there in 39. Then when you read chapter 40, verse 1 of Isaiah, it says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. All of a sudden, there's this seismic shift in tone in the book of Isaiah that's from mostly judgment to now, for these next 15 chapters, Isaiah 40 to 55, the middle section of the book, which is where we're going to be at today, God is now prophesying comfort over his people. He's already prophesied judgment, and now the people, they have been judged. They've been carried off into exile. They saw their home destroyed, They saw all people killed and now they're off in a foreign land wondering what's going to happen to them and God tells them. He says, comfort my people, your warfare is ended. And then he proceeds to prophesy about how he's going to restore the people of Israel, how he loves them, how he's never going to forsake them. So people call these middle chapters of Isaiah, which is where we're going to be today, 40 to 55, it's called the book of comfort. It's all of these beautiful prophecies of comfort. Another name for these middle chapters of Isaiah 40 to 55, some people call it the book of the servant because the other thing we see as you go through these chapters is that four times there is a servant song. Four times Isaiah prophesies that one day there's going to be a servant who comes and he's going to rescue his people. One day there's going to be a servant who comes and Israel's going to be restored back into their land. And there's four of these songs crescendoing throughout the book And they end with the final fourth servant song in chapter 53 of the suffering servant. And after each one of these songs, there's a little, you could call it like an epilogue that basically says, what is the result of what that servant just did? What is, uh, how should we respond to what the servant is going to do? So every time there's a servant song, then there's a response. There's an explanation. There's a song, then there's a response. There's a song, there's a response. And so chapter 55, where we are this morning, I think we can only understand it in light of chapter 53 of Isaiah, because 55 is this culmination of what the servant has done in chapter 53. And so, just quickly before we get into 55, I'm going to walk through what is happening. Isaiah 53, 54, and then we'll land in 55 for the rest of our time together. If any of you were at our Good Friday service uh, about a month ago, back in April, Uh, You've heard this passage before, certainly. This is the final and fourth servant song, Isaiah chapter 53, where we learn that the servant who's going to come, this prophesied servant who's going to come save his people, he's actually going to save them by being pierced for their transgressions. If you look, you can look there, 53 verses 5 and 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The way that God's servant comes and actually saves his people is to take their sins and put them on himself. He was crushed for the sins of God's people so that, in verse 11, many would be counted righteous because he bore their iniquities. Of course, we know now that this servant is Jesus Christ who came who suffered and died, uh, not because he sinned, but because he took God's people's sins on himself so that they could be made righteous, so that he could make intercession for them. 
Now, everything that happens in chapters 54 and 55 hangs on what Jesus Christ, the servant, the suffering servant, has already done in 53. If you look at 54, verses 2 and 3, now that Israel's sins have been taken away, now that God's people's sins have been taken care of, look what happens next. God tells them, enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will possess the desolate cities. Because of what the servant did in chapter 53, because the servant bore the sins of the people, God is going to take a barren people and he is going to make them have many children. He's going to expand their tents all over the world to the nations. The tents of Israel are going to expand. And then when we get to chapter 55, I think what we see here taken away sin because God has enlarged the tents of Israel now God calls out and anyone can now come in to the tent of Israel let's read now in Isaiah chapter 55 the first five verses this call from the Lord come everyone who thirsts come to the waters and he who has no money come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without price Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. I think what we see in this call in Isaiah chapter 55 is that we all have Come to me, all you who are thirsty, which I think is all of us, and you can be quenched at God's table. He continues on. It's not just thirsty people, but all the people who are coming, they have no money. Not only are we thirsty, but we can't ever hope to pay for the thing that would actually satisfy us. We're completely broke. We have no money. There's no way to buy our way into this table, to these waters that give life. And so God, having compassion, loving us, says, come, buy and eat without money, without price. And it's not that God just barely, he lets, he's like, okay, I see that you have this need. I know you can't, you know, do anything about it, but, uh, so I'll give you a little water. Come on in. No, he opens the floodgates. He brings us into a seat at his table. And it's not just 
barely what we need. It's more than we could ever need. It's wine and milk. It's not just cheap water. It's rich food. It's rich wine, rich milk, expensive food. This is a feast that God is inviting anyone to come into because of what his son has done. I think that we see basically this exact same call in the New Testament. Jesus several times calls out to people in a very similar way, this exact same call. If you remember in John chapter 4, he's at this well with the Samaritan woman. They're talking about the water at the well. And he said, if you knew who I am, you'd ask me for living water. And then he goes on to explain to her in John chapter 4 verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus called people to come and get living water. He says it again just a few chapters later in John uh, chapter 7, starting verse 37. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I think this call we see in Isaiah 55 is the call for anyone and everyone to come and have their need met in the only way it can be, which is to come to the table and find true life, true water that actually quenches your thirst at God's table. God continues on in verses 2 and 3, continuing this call, amping it up, continuing to cry out, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? God looks out at us. He sees us down here in the world running around, trying to do anything we can to be fulfilled, trying to do anything we can to live a good life and continuing to fail, continuing to waste our money for stuff that isn't bread, continuing to do things that aren't ever going to satisfy us. And instead of laughing at us or instead of not caring about us at all, he sees us in our futility and he says, why? Stop it. I'm calling you to my table. He has compassion on us and he says, please stop. Please listen to my call. Why do you keep wasting your life on these nonsense things? Come to the only place where you can be quenched. He repeats three times, listen diligently to me. Incline your ear. Hear that your soul may live. This is why God is calling. God is calling because the only way to live is to come to his table. What is the result of coming to the table and feasting and having your thirst quenched? It's that your soul may live. And then God finishes his call by explaining what does that look like? What does it mean that your soul may live? What is this actually talking about? What is this feast that is happening here? This feast, this soul life that we get when we come to the table with God is an everlasting covenant and a steadfast love. He tells them to remember David, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. The incredible message of Isaiah 55 is that anyone who hears God's call, anyone who is thirsty and needs quenching and comes to the table can now be brought in to the people of Israel, can be brought in to the covenant promises that God made to David. God promised to David that he would be on the throne forever. There's this covenant running through the Old Testament that all the nations would be blessed, that there'd be this Davidic king on the throne. And what God is doing here is inviting anyone in to come and enjoy the same love that he has given to his servant, David. And look what happens when we come in. Verse 5, you call a nation you do not know, a nation that you did not know runs to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. In Jesus Christ, who God glorified on that third day when he rose again, he ascended to heaven, the nations run and come in and enjoy in the covenant blessings of Israel. What an amazing God we serve that he would take that covenant that he made with David and bring us all into it. 
that he would make a way for anyone to come to God's table and feast with them to be quenched. And when we do come, people see that, they look, and even more and more nations come in. Nations we don't know, nations all over the world have continued to come in for the past 2,000 years, ever since Christ came. The gospel spreads throughout the world because they see what God has done for us. They see that he has quenched our thirst, that this is the only way to be saved. They see that and they come in to the covenant. I think there's two clear lines of application that go throughout this whole sermon because there's only two kinds of people that hear this call. There's the people who hear it and haven't come to the table yet and there's those of us who have come to the table and who have tasted the water that actually quenches thirst, the water that brings everlasting life. So for anyone here this morning who is not a believer, you've never answered the call of the Lord, you've never come to the table, and you're running around in your life trying to figure out any way to be happy, any way to have satisfaction, any way to live well, and you keep coming up empty, you keep wasting time on things that never satisfy, you keep going back to the same old things you know that don't work, come to the table where you can have your need met. This is the only place where you can come to have true, fulfilled life, where you can have life everlasting in this covenant love for David that is available to you. Come to the table. Don't wait any longer. God is offering freely for anyone to come to his table. For those of us who have heard this call, we are believers. We have come to the table. We know we've had our need met. Our need, our problem that we've had this whole time has been solved. We're now at the table feasting with the Lord. I think the clear thing that we need to do when we look at Isaiah 55 is go and spread this call. We have hope. We know what it's like to not have hope, to live in the world, not able to figure anything out, continuing to go back to the same old stuff that never works. It's hopeless and it's futile. But we have the answer. We know that the only water that quenches is the living water from Christ. And so we go out from here this morning and we go and we tell people and we say, hey, did you know that God's calling you Did you know that you're thirsty? Do you know why you keep running around and never satisfied with your life, trying all these things? It's because there's a need that only God can meet in you and he is calling you to his table. Come to the table. As we think about the way that God has rescued us and brought us into the covenant promises of Israel, we should run out of here to go tell other people that, hey, God's calling you now. You don't have to keep scrambling around. Laugh at them and be
God is calling. God does want people to come to his table, but there is a day that will come when he won't be found. There's a day that will come when he won't be near. And so Isaiah adds this sense of urgency to the passage and he says, come now, seek him while he may be found. And then he explains to us how we actually come to the table. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. I think what we see here in verses six and seven is that the actual way that you seek the Lord is through repentance. The, the other, you could say, you could say forsaking wickedness, repenting, forsaking witness, wickedness is seeking the Lord. It's two sides of the same coin. If we want to come to the table, we have to forsake wickedness, forsake wickedness. And if we are repenting and forsaking wickedness, we are coming to the table. It's all the same thing. I think what Isaiah says here is the way you actually make it into the feast is through repentance. And it looks like a whole life surrender to our God. It's realizing, it's having a changed view of your own sin. It's realizing in the first place that you are in fact wicked. We need to be like the guy in Luke 18 who cried out to God in prayer, God have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. The first step in forsaking wickedness is realizing your own wickedness. Then as we realize our wickedness, we should have sorrow over our sin. We should realize that not only have we messed everything else up in our life, but ultimately we've sinned against a holy God. We've sinned against the God who created us. We recognize our wickedness. We have sorrow over it. 2 Corinthians tells us about godly sorrow that leads to repentance. We, we see our sin and we come to the Lord for forgiveness knowing that we can't do anything about it, that we have uh, messed up and we need him. And finally, forsaking wickedness looks like a change in your purpose. It looks like a resolve to stop sinning. Not that you'll never sin again, but that you don't want to sin anymore. That you stop chasing after sin and you start chasing after Christ. You start running to him instead of, and when that sin pops up again, when you mess up again, it's not that you've stopped sinning and now you're facing Christ. It's that you hate that sin. It's that you've resolved to never do it again. You hate when it happens and you want to stop doing it. This is what it looks like to forsake wickedness and this is the way into the feast that God provides and God offers to us. Because the reality is that wicked people can't actually come to the feast. Why do you think that the wicked person has to be pardoned here in verse seven? When they come to the Lord, he has compassion on them and he abundantly pardons them. It's because wicked people can't come to the feast. That's the problem in verse one. We're all thirsty, but we don't have money. We, we all have a need, but we can't fix it. We are wicked and we have no way to make ourselves not wicked. So God, remembering back to Isaiah 53, just a few chapters earlier, made a way. He sent a servant down who would suffer for our sins. And I want to point something out to you. Look back at verse 1, thinking about this feast that we're invited to. Notice how it doesn't say, all right, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, come and eat. It actually says, come buy and eat. It doesn't say, come and just have some wine and milk. It says, come buy the wine and milk without money and without price. Why would God keep hammering home this idea that we have to actually buy our way in if it's free? It's because the meal's not actually free. Somebody had to pay for the meal and we couldn't do it. So Jesus Christ paid for us. The only way to get into this meal is if Jesus Christ has paid on your behalf because there's no, you don't have the money, you don't have the possible way to get in, you are wicked. And so to get into the feast, you repent, you go to him and you cast your faith on him and he pays your ticket. You were bought at a price. The way into this feast is through Christ's blood that purchased you, the, most, the ultimate price. It wasn't like Jesus had to hand some money over. He died bearing your sins so that you could sit at the table. 
It's not a free feast. It's one that's been purchased. Your ticket has been punched by Jesus Christ through his blood, his death, his resurrection. And why did Jesus have to die? What is the result of Jesus dying? It's that so that God can have compassion on us and that he will abundantly pardon. The good news is that we go to the feast pardoned. No matter how much we've sinned, no matter how much we've done, we can enter into the feast completely forgiven before God because Jesus Christ's blood covers it. And so this morning, I hope you hear the urgency of this passage. I hope you hear Isaiah pleading with us, seek the Lord now, repent now while he may be found. If you are in here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, don't wait any longer. Right now, this morning, this week, call, throw yourself upon the Lord, repent of your sins, realize your wickedness, and ask for forgiveness, and put your faith in Christ, knowing that his death is the only way you're getting in. Trust that that is the way, and be saved and come for abundant pardon. And again, for those of us who already have that pardon, for those of us who have a seat at the table, who have repented of our sins, and placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, we can't help but look at this great sacrifice that Jesus made and worship him and surrender our whole lives to him. Think about how incredible it is that God made a way through his son for us to be brought into the feast, into communion with him, and we live for him. And part of what that looks like is to stop wasting time sinning. It's not that once you have repented, you've been saved, you have your ticket is punched to the feast, right there you're justified. Right there, all of your sins have been abundantly pardoned. But then how come we still find ourselves chasing after things that won't satisfy us when we have the thing that does satisfy us? How come we find ourselves going back to the same old sins when we know that we are abundantly pardoned from those sins? When we hear about the gospel, when we read passages like this about the incredible love and compassion of God to rescue us, that should make us hate our sin and run away from it. We're justified immediately and we're sanctified as we continue in our life. So as we notice ourselves trying to buy things that aren't going to quench our thirst, when we notice ourselves sinning the same old sin that never satisfies us, we run back to the Lord and repent again. Not to be saved, but to remember, to know that we are abundantly pardoned. Because we're pardoned, because God has compassion, we can run back to him. There's no sin too great. There's no sin that you've messed up too many times where you go, ah, is God really going to forgive me this time? You are forgiven. There's no condemnation in Christ for those who have placed their faith in him. So stop sinning. Stop messing around with stuff that doesn't satisfy because you already have the thing that does satisfy. Our life as we go forward on this Christian journey, this walk as we go towards the end looking forward is one of repentance where we continually see the ways where we aren't relying on God, where we aren't actually living into the ways that he has saved us, where we aren't acting like we're forgiven. And we continually come and confess to him and seek him now so that we can live and not seek after useless things. This passage finishes up with three reasons piling on one on top of the other for why we need to repent now, why we need to seek the Lord now, why you should not mess around with sin now, just come to him. The first reason is found in verses eight and nine. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The first reason that we hear that we need to come and receive abundant pardon 
is because God is so much higher than us, higher than the heavens are above the earth. An immeasurable distance is between us and God. And I think this reason cuts two ways. The first way is that, man, when you view our God who is perfect and who is holy and who is totally different than us, his thoughts are totally other to us, we should fall down and repent right now because there's no way we could ever make it there. We are so different than him. We are so utterly sinful. So we fall down and we repent. We say, God, you were higher than me. And it causes us to come and repent. But I think it cuts the other way too. We look at our God who's higher than us, whose ways are better than us, ways are perfect, uh, more than we could ever come up with. And we think about the great salvation we've been given. Which one of us could have ever come up with a way for us to be saved and brought back in? God's love, not only is God holier than us, infinitely holier than us, but he is infinitely more loving than us. He has this compassion that we don't have. And so we can run to him knowing that he will and he does and he already has abundantly pardoned. The first reason why we need to repent now while we can find the Lord, seek him while he may be found, is because of who he is, because he's higher than us, more holy and more loving, so we run to him. The second reason is in verses 10 to 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The second reason why we need to repent and come now is because God's word is effective. God uses this analogy, tells us to look outside, look at the rain, and what he's talking about here is a picture of the inevitability of the rain. It doesn't matter if you want it to rain or not, it's just going to rain. And you can't actually stop the rain from doing what it's going to do. You can try all kinds of ways, but that rain is going to water that tree. It doesn't matter if you don't want the tree to be taller, the rain's going to go and nourish it and make it taller. It doesn't matter if we don't want the rain to flood the church basement again, the rain just does what it does. We can't stop it. This is picture of inevitability. It's this picture of the rain comes out and it accomplishes what it came out to do. The same thing is true of God's word. God's word is effective. God's word does what he says it will do. In fact, God's word is the thing that does it. We see this all through scripture. God created the world through his word. He spoke and everything came into existence. He didn't, his word actually effectively created everything. We see in Ezekiel 37 that God tells Ezekiel to speak to these dry bones that they may have life. The word goes out and it actually gives life. And of course, Jesus Christ came as the word incarnate and accomplished what he came to do. God's word is powerful. It does not fail. When God says something, it happens. It goes forth and it does what he says it's going to do. So he will abundantly pardon. We seek the Lord, we repent, knowing that he's going to pardon us. He said he will and his word does it, whether we want it to or not. In fact, it's even from his call, from his word, that we even in the beginning have the idea to come to faith in him. He plants those seeds of faith and repentance in us by his word, and he brings them to completion. God's word is effective. It does what it will do. So repent and come to him so you can find abundant pardon. Finally, the last two verses, the last reason why we need to repent now, come to the Lord now. In verse 12, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign 
that shall not be cut off. The last reason why we need to seek the Lord now while he may be found, why we need to come with repentance now, is because God has assured for us a future. He's set the table. He's calling us to a feast that he is guaranteeing will happen, that he will bring forth to the end. When we come to the Lord in verse 12, we find joy. We find that we can face our trials with joy. We can actually count trials as joy. We can go forth in peace. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to worry because we are reconciled. We are pardoned by the God of the universe and he holds us in his hand and he shepherds us. And then we see as we go forth, the mountains and hills are breaking forth into singing. The fields or trees are clapping. And in verse 13, we see that the ultimate reality is for all that come to the feast, the curse is finally reversed. All these thorns, all this sin, all this desolate earth, God reverses it. And instead of thorns, we have cypress, evergreen trees. Instead of briars, myrtles, evergreen everywhere. It's a picture of life. It's through repentance, it's through coming to this table that God makes a name for himself, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. He secures a future for his people. And all the nations see it and come in. It spreads throughout the whole world. And the sign that shall not be cut off is actually the name for the Lord there at the end of verse 13. It's us, the name for the Lord. It's, it's the people that he has gathered to himself. Remember in verse five, it's, it's, they see how God has glorified David and they come to him. We will never be cut off because we are God's name. We are how he shows his love and compassion. He has abundantly pardoned us. He has made for us a world to come where there'll be no more crying or pain. There'll be no more death but we will be an everlasting sign in joy and peace with singing and clapping and praising forever. And all we have to do is repent now and come to the Lord. So as we go out of here this morning, again, if you've never repented, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, please don't wait. Do it now while he can be found. And for those of us who have been saved, for those of us who have found the Lord, For those of us who are abundantly pardoned and who have this future inheritance, we go out worshiping our king and surrendering our life to him. We go out shouting from the rooftops, letting people know, hey, I know the hope. I know that what's wrong with you. I have the answer. God is calling you to come and be quenched. What a great savior we have who wouldn't just leave us with no way to pay for a feast, but actually came himself became a human, humbled himself to the point of death so that he could pay for us to get in, took our own sins upon him so that we could be forgiven. What a beautiful, amazing Savior that we serve. And let's go out this morning and proclaim and share and spread the good news of that Savior to everyone we meet, letting them know that they should seek the Lord and repent now. We go out into this life knowing that the only way to be saved is to come to the Lord in repentance, so we go out and we share that with everyone we meet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you most of all, God, that you have made a way for us to join you at this feast. You've made a way for our problem to be solved, for our need, for our thirst to be quenched. You sent your son to come and be a servant to all and not just to be a servant, but to be a suffering servant, a servant who would take on sins he never committed, would pay the price of blood that he didn't know so that we could have a seat at the table, so that he could punch our ticket so we could get in. God, I pray that we would seek you now while you are able to be found, that those of us who have been pardoned, that we would cast aside sin, that when we find ourselves sinning, we would run to you and confess, and that we would live our life in thankfulness and gratitude to the reality that we've been saved 
and we would go and share that with others. God, we have the answer to the hope that this world is looking for. I pray that we would be people who go and share this call and spread this call throughout the world, knowing, God, that you are the one who actually calls people to yourself. You're the one who glorifies us, and it's when people see the, what you've done in us that they come. Not who we are or what we say, but what you have done is what draws people to you, God. Give us the boldness and the love that we need to share our faith with those around us. And thank you that you have given us a seat at the table. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.